Welcome to Auckland Conversations, ideas for becoming the world's most livable city. Kia ora and uh, good evening everybody. Um, welcome to tonight's uh, Auckland Conversation, uh, the value of well-designed cities uh, with Joe Minicosi. Um, my name is Ludo Campbell-Reed and I'm the uh, proud sponsor of the Auckland Conversations uh, series. I'm also the council's urban design champion and uh, general manager of a group called the Auckland Design Office. Um, I'd like to welcome you all tonight and thank you for, thank you for turning up. Um, without you, the conversation uh, is impossible to have. Um, I'd also like to welcome those people who are, are following us online, uh, forever in the world they, they may be. Um, good to have you, have you there. We've got a tweet uh, program underway, a bit of social media program. So we have a, a hashtag which people can use to join the conversation. It is uh, hashtag AKL conversations. So hashtag AKL conversations. Um, just a couple of um, housekeeping issues before we get going. Um, bathrooms are at the back of the, uh, the, the room, back into the lobby space area, uh, just next to the exit doors. Um, in the unlikely event of an uh, emergency, or an alarm will sound and uh, we will be directed to the exits uh, by the ushers who will make themselves known to you if that uh, situation did arise. Um, just for your comfort, we've also um, got the amazing uh, um, Layla and also Daniel who's here tonight. Uh, uh, Layla, who is here on my right-hand side, is uh, a member of the New Zealand Sign Language um, and Interpreters Association. Uh, so it would be great to give your uh, warm support to them. So. so we're in our 10th uh, year of the Auckland Conversations program and um, it's pretty exciting um, the amount of people that have come through and supported us. Um, but in terms of uh, delivering the program, we would never be able to do this without the support of the uh, private sector. Um, two groups in particular, or two organisations in particular, that have been with us for a long time now. Uh, I'd like to uh, make a particular thanks to the incredible uh, team um, from Rosine um, and also uh, from, from Jib as well, who've been with us for a long time. So would you mind please giving them a hand too? Um, also, as with all these things, we have a lot of people who, who get on board and it's just fantastic to have a whole range of programme supporters as well who are um, also, um, we're very grateful to them for their support. Um, Joe is here um, uh, before um, he flies down to Dunedin um, where he's speaking at the New Zealand Planning Institute conference and we spoke to the, the Planning Institute team and asked if we could um, host him and they kindly offered up his, his time. So we're really grateful to the NZPI uh, for their continued support of this program, but also the work they do with the council. Um, but also finally I'd like to thank uh, a, a great team uh, from MR Cagney who particularly uh, has helped bring um, Joe to us tonight, uh, particularly Jensen and, uh, and Kent who are great sort of advocate, urbanist advocates. Um, they are our event partners this evening. Um, MR Cagney is one of the uh, Australia's, Australasia's uh, largest leading transportation consultancies. Um, they have a reputation for excellence and in developing innovative solutions for complex and unusual projects. And uh, we've worked with them quite a lot, um, which is fantastic. And it's been, their support's been um, invaluable. So uh, thank you guys for your support. So on to tonight. Um, so Joe Minicosi. Joe is... Um, has founded a, an organisation called Urban Three in 2001, 
Uh, it's a consulting firm that emerged from the public interest projects. Um, it's a real estate developer in Asheville, North Carolina. Um, Joe's company, Urban3, are a, a pioneer in, in what we call geospatial representation of economic productivity. Um, this basically helps communities and organizations and decision makers make better decisions, make more informed decisions, basically by understanding the data and the design. And so that's pretty, pretty key. Um, Joe's work has prompted a paradigm shift in understanding of the economic potency of well-designed cities. So um, music to my ears. Um, Joe's multidisciplinary expertise with city planning um, in the public and private sectors um, as well as in his ingenuity with real estate finance, which has been, again, a, a really key combination, prompted the development of a whole range of analytical tools, which is what we're going to be talking about tonight, data. And uh, these tools have been featured in a range of, of large-scale um, productions, the Wall Street Journal, uh, Planetizen, uh, Planning, and the New Urban News. To quote himself, um, which is always dangerous, in terms of development patterns in the, in the U.S., the global car accident on the side of the road that passerby cannot afford to look at. It can be terribly entertaining, but there are lessons to pick up from, bearing witness. A bit like the, um, bit like Donald watching Donald Trump, um, sort of political car accident happening. Um, the relevance of Joe's presentation to Auckland and our discussions about our future could not be more apt um, at this moment in time, Joe. You know, you've really come at a key moment in our in our genesis. Um, discussions around density, that, that, that dirty word, um, the city rail link, um, the light rail transit system for the city which we're considering at the moment, sky path, cycling across the harbour bridge, you know, there are people against that for, for, for bizarre reasons, um, and discussions around the future of the port, you know, big, hairy, audacious conversations that this organisation and the city and its citizens need to be having. And it's a really important time for you to be here. I cannot wait to hear more about what you're up to and hear from you. So without further ado, everybody, uh, Joe. Well, good evening, everyone. <coughs> Is the mic on? Um, I don't know quite where to start with this. It's kind of fascinating to come here as, an, as a trained urban designer. I'm actually sort of not allowed to use that word um, where I'm from. No one knows what urban design is. So it's, it's kind of refreshing to be in a place where you actually practice it. Um, telling you a story about what, what I do or where I'm from, it's kind of hard to, where to start. So in coming here, I was trying to think of what's the best way to explain how, the way that I look at cities or, or how I practice. And the best thing that I can think of is, is how I see myself. Um, I have a DNA in me. We all have DNA, right? So this is how I started my life when I had hair, and I was three months old. And uh, my mom actually put a barrette in my hair. But um, this is where I'm going. Whether I like it or not, I'm going to be Papa. Um, this is my path, right? We, we all have this in us. We all see where we're going through our, through our relatives. Or more importantly, I, I look at this, this guy. I look at my dad. So I've got two genetic issues. I'm genetically Italian. You can see that from my name or how much I wave my hands around. But we also have a genetic predisposition to heart disease. So this is something that's within me that I have to think about every time I put food in my mouth, right? You all do this. You all think of your families. You think of your medical histories. You think of these things, particularly as you get older, and how, you, how it happens with your destiny. So I have to exercise. I have to eat right. 
I have to lower my stress level. We do this. This is what cities are. Where's Auckland going? Who's Auckland's grandfather? Where do you want to be when you grow up? What are your issues? What heart attacks have you had? Um, have you learned from these experiences? And are you changing your diet? And this is what this conversation is all about, right? This is what this series is all about. Where are you going? And having those role models is critically important. Um, the second lesson I want to put out there is a quick little test. For those of you that sat through this morning, you can't shout the answers out, but for everybody else, I'm going to give you a quick little kid's puzzle um, with a, a five-second, I'll give you five seconds to tell me how many shapes you see in this kid's puzzle. So five seconds, tell me how many shapes you see in this kid's puzzle. Ready, go. Okay, who's got the answer? Just go ahead and shout it out. Wow, 70. Seven? Oh, 17. Okay, sorry. Um, what's the high number? I need, keep, keep going. 18? 19? Okay. 25. Okay. How many kids were on the school bus? Anyone? What time was it on the clock? Daniel Kahneman's a Nobel-winning uh, uh, behavioral economist. He wrote a book called Thinking Fast and Slow. We have modes of thinking in our brains. What I just did is I put you into fast mode. I asked you a question. You immediately stripped out all the information and started counting shapes. You didn't see that there were five kids on the bus. You didn't see that it was 10 after 10 on the, on the clock, right? Because I didn't ask you that question. As we talk about cities, one of the things that I'm going to show you, I'm going to show you a lot of stuff here. But it's all stuff that's hiding in plain sight. It's all data that you have that's all around you. You're just asking the wrong question about how you're looking at your own city. So let's talk about cities. For me, the question of what a city is, this is Asheville, North Carolina. This is my hometown um, up in the um, Smoky Mountains in the Appalachian chain. You can see why they call it the Smoky Mountains with the clouds coming in at the low cloud cover. Um, the, the question of what the city is and how it operates is critically important. Um, it's up in the mountains, uh, it's western North Carolina, tucked away in the Appalachian chain. Beautiful scenery, uh, Blue Ridge Parkway, uh, Smoky Mountains, um, home of bluegrass music, um, beer. We've got way too much beer in my town. I don't know if you can ever have that. We've got 40 breweries in our metropolitan region. We're only 90,000 people. So on a brewery per capita basis, we're at 5,000 people per brewery. Um, we have a good time in our town, so come and drink some of our beer. Um, and like any quirky little mountain town, we have men dressed as nuns who ride tall bikes and they eat fire. Your typical little place, right? This is how Asheville started in the 1800s. This is a shot down Main Street 15 years after this picture was taken. This is what it became. We like to say the three T's made Asheville, trains, tourism, and tuberculosis, that once the train lines came, it actually brought a flood of tourists from the Northeast, particularly the manufacturing towns of the Rust Belt. Um, we had the second streetcar line in the entire country. Uh, that was pretty groundbreaking. Um, presidents came to visit. Presidents still visit. We've had Obama in Asheville three times. He comes for our barbecue. We have really good barbecue, by the way. Um, during the 1920s, we were growing at 20% in population every single year of the decade, which is explosive growth. We became the second largest city in North Carolina. We were bigger than Charlotte by the time the Depression hit. And in that growth spurt, we actually achieved the highest debt per capita of the entire United States. We were number one in debt. 
when our books were audited after the crash, we thought we had, we thought we had $5 million in the bank. It turned out we had $18,000 in the bank. A little clerical error there. And three days after our city council was indicted, the mayor committed suicide. That's how Asheville entered the Depression. Thomas Wolfe, famous American author, author of the book Look Homeward Angel, who's a native of Asheville, he's living in New York City teaching English literature, had this to say about Asheville. Incidentally, he wrote this in a book. Asheville has squandered fabulous sums. They've flung away the earnings of a lifetime. They've mortgaged those of a generation to come. They have ruined a city. And in doing so, they've ruined themselves, their children, and their children's children. That's a hell of a thing to say about your hometown, right? Um, Incidentally, for those of you that don't know Southern culture, um, this is actually incredibly inflammatory. Um, His family was threatened. He was threatened. Um, They basically told his parents to never let him set foot in home again. So he actually wrote a second book called You Can't Go Home Again, for obvious reasons. It's a true story. Um, But in a way, it's not that he was clairvoyant. He would nail what would happen to our community. It would take us generations to get out of this. When the New Deal program came out, and a lot of American cities were absolved of their debt, if you'd heard about the stimulus package that Obama released when he came through this last recession, it was a very similar thing. Asheville actually chose to not take the money. We didn't want the federal dollars. We took our our debt out. We were going to pay it back. It took us until 1976 to pay off that debt. This is the newspaper. This is July 2nd, 1976. And to show you the damage to the children's children, check this out. It's not even the lead story. It's the third story in the headline. Um, You can see that it's important because we teleprompter in Billy Graham. There he is. Um, We get three guys to burn the bond. This is Miss Asheville with her tiara holding the whole thing. But it's behind something about abortions and then somebody dying in a prison fire. Not even in our county. That's a neighboring county. This would have a resounding effect in our community for generations to deal with. When we got out of that debt, what did we start doing? Just like any American city, we started building highways. We cut one through the north side of downtown called the Crosstown Expressway. And the coup de grace was when we blew a hole through Bowcatcher Mountain, which is called the Bowcatcher Cut. I love that it's on a postcard. Isn't this awesome? Please, come visit our cut. On the other side of the cut, the mall happened. And our downtown died. Is this a familiar story to anybody in this room? Of course. We followed the paradigm of any American city before us. We didn't learn the lessons of the heart attacks that people had already had when downtowns were dying all around us. We basically just got there a little bit late to the game. These are shots of downtown Asheville from not too long ago. That's a 1996 Chevy Celebrity right there. Look at this wonderful real estate opportunity. Please come to Asheville and put your blood, sweat, and tears into fixing that thing up. How'd you like to do that? You could blow a cannon off and not hit anybody on the street. We like to say our answer was aluminum. You just cover it up with aluminum and maybe things will get better, right? We had all of these buildings boarded up and fallow. We were just sitting flat on our face economically. Now, the, the silver lining in this, we were too poor to tear any of them down. So much like our other American counterparts, what they did is they did urban renewal. They just tore all the buildings down. We didn't do that because we had bad credit, basically. But anytime somebody tried to fix downtown, what we would hear from the community is, that'll never work here, don't even try. We're not urban people, we're not, we're not Sydney, we're not San Francisco, we're mountain people, we're rural. Y'all hear some of that in your community? It's not who we are. So Julian Price in the upper right, upper left here, 
Julian founded public interest projects with his own personal wealth. He basically inherited um, a, a large fortune, um, not tremendously large, but he, in, he invested $15 million into starting a real estate development company called Public Interest Projects. 75% of their money goes into sticks and bricks, 25% seeds businesses. So while we fix buildings up, upstairs and get residential, we also help businesses on the ground floor. Um, it's a real simple model. It's basically a revolving fund. But the first vegetarian restaurant that the bank said would never happen, could never work, we funded. It's now an anchor in our town. We're one of the top 10 vegetarian cities in the entire country. Um, but all of that, it's not just Julian. There was a lot of other actors uh, making the city great. But he's our essentially father of our business. This is one of our buildings before and after. We were told it would never work. This has been 99% leased up ever since. Again, we were looking at models of other cities. Doing urban dwelling units was not groundbreaking for us. We just basically copied models from other places that worked. Um, the other thing about Julian that he had to deal with was the, was the contention of how people felt about the city. So it was this constant education and campaign, much like what you all are doing here tonight, which is have a conversation about this. He just did it with traditional media. Um, and this is what the city looked like back then, just bricked in buildings. Um, and I love this article that he posted on billboards of all things, but this quote, among cities with no recreation appeal, those that have preserved their past continue to enjoy tourism. Those that haven't receive almost no tourism at all. Tourism simply doesn't go to a city that's lost its soul. In a way, you can hear Thomas Wolfe coming back again, this kind of criticism of the city, but he's also trying to lift the spirits of the community and have some sense of pride of place. 15 years after he published this, Frommer's Magazine would list us as the number five place in the country to visit. Last year, we got listed number one. We're a town of 90,000 people. We've had nine million tourists come through our town last year alone. So I, I can't, and I certainly can't possibly drink at all of those 40 breweries, but we import people to have the beer for me, right? We have 70 restaurants downtown. All of these choices are afforded to us to live there in this great place to, to live as a quality of life standpoint. We started this as an experiment as a create a place to live that's really nice, and more begat more. The more people that got there, the more people that would create more jobs, more businesses, more opportunities, more people would come to visit that. That's a simple city model. So Joe, what does this mean? How do you show people how this works from a city perspective? For us, what we try to find is a way to communicate this through data. Can I explain to my elected officials what's going on with my city? Um, to show you our central business district, just taking the core of the downtown, it's worth $100 million in 1990. So if we have a $15 million portfolio inside this other portfolio called the central business district, it's worth $100 million. Just by fixing up those buildings that you saw that were all vacant, our, our downtown grew to $500 million. So that's a tremendous growth in value. Our taxes or rates that are paid in our community just swelled by five times, right? Just by fixing what was already there. Now, what's, just to show you that it's all not love and roses in my community, these are some of the campaign ads from the 90s. Uh, this is Chris Peterson, who is actually a city councilor. I love this. this. You know, here's some taxpayer just, you know, look at this guy, he's crying, just shackled to $26 million in streetscape improvements and parking decks, basically, right? So who's got $26 million sitting in their pocket? Anyone? Of course not. It's a lot of money. And Chris, it's a tremendous amount of money. I love this downtown development for bureaucrats instead of water, sewer, and streets for our citizens. 
That's Chris's perspective. All right. That's good to have that perspective. I appreciate your opinion, but what's the facts? Well, the facts are you invested $26 million here, and then the private sector grew the wealth of the community to $500 million. So just a quick question. If you invest $26 million and get a $400 million return, is that a good return on investment? Yeah. Why do we listen to Chris? What's that? 15 years. So that's still a good deal. So why do we care about investment? Why do I ask you about the value of place? Well, if we look at this word incorporate in the Oxford, Oxford Dictionary, what does it say? To constitute a company, a city, or other organization as a legal corporation. So my city has a finite boundary of land. It's got a finite quantity of, of hectares. That's all that it is. We're all in this together. We're all shareholders in this corporation. We elect a board of directors to manage that system. My city is worth something, is a real estate development project, right? So my city is, is got to be managed. This is all that we have are those acres that are there or hectares. And my city is worth $12.8 billion US dollars in taxable value. So if my city were a corporation, it'd be four times the value of this guy. So if he can run around and call himself a billionaire and, t and brag about his wealth, why can't my community? I should wear this hat while I'm doing this presentation now, shouldn't I? Um, just kidding. I kind of feel dirty doing that. Um, so if you think about land as a product, if you think about the way that farmers look at their crops, farmers are making economic decisions. When you look at agriculture, it's one of the most economically driven models of, of land use. That you, you don't just go out and till all of the soil. You have to know what that crop yields in the marketplace, right? You have to know what your fertilizer, what, what goes in, the labor that goes in. All of those numbers are thought before you till the soil. So if we look at this building, this is one of our buildings, what it was worth. We've, we made ground story retail, second floor office, residential above. The city, this is what the, the, we were subsidized with this improvement in the streetscape. The city built a garbage can, a bike rack, two benches, and a street tree. Thank you, city, for $20,000 worth of investment. We took this from $300,000 to $11 million. That's a 3,500% increase in taxes. We could look at it as a 3,500% penalty for fixing a building, but we don't see it that way. We see that our community now has a portfolio gain of 3,500% off one stock commodity. Anybody in the room have a, an investment account that grows by 3,500%? Wouldn't you like that? I mean, that's the wealth that's gained in our community off fixing a building. And people say to me, they're like, well, Joe, that's fine. That's $11 million. We've got this Walmart over here at $20 million. Walmart pays $220,000 in taxes or rates. That's what they pay. It's a tremendous sum. But it also took 34 acres to make it happen. This is my house. Those are my dogs. My dogs think they're lions. They're a little weird. But they're very strange dogs, by the way. But um, my neighbors get really freaked out when we do that. We, we have a... Uh, we're on a third of an acre, we're paying $2,000. So if a one acre cookie cutter fell from space and hit my neighborhood, it grabbed 10 houses, right? Or about $20,000 an acre in taxes. You follow me? If we lift that one acre cookie cutter in space, fly it over to the Walmart and drop it down, divide it $220,000 by the 34 it's sitting on, this is what it's paying in taxes per acre. And if you had an acre of our building, this is what you get. Okay. 
you all are running my community. You just moved to Asheville and you win an election. You become my mayor. What kind of cash flow do you want to have in your community? I was presenting this in Colorado and I was like, let me just make it real simple for, y- for y'all in Colorado. What would you grow? This, this joke works in Asheville too, by the way. So you're probably saying, okay, well, Joe, in some communities, some states, some of our cities operate off retail. They're like, look, we don't, we don't do, we actually take the loss in property taxes to take the gains in retail taxes. Now, I don't know what business would do that, where they just take losses on things, but let's go ahead and remove me because I don't sell anything, and let's run the numbers on retail. We th- this is the transactions that happen. The city gets a portion of a portion of that, or about 47000 an acre in retail taxes, or a total nut of retail plus property of $51,000 an acre. This is what you're getting in property taxes alone out of our building. Let's be fair, we've got retail in our building. Now we're cooking with gas at $414,000 in taxes. Which would you rather have? Well, Joe, you know, we don't do it for that. We actually do it for jobs. Okay, let's look at jobs. Who's got more jobs? You know, when you stack these things up, if you just do the math on it, the truth will become real to you on what's actually better for you. We've been building cities for tens of thousands of years because they make economic sense. Y'all follow that? I mean, we've even got 90 units an acre of residential versus this. Zero. So in the states, our cities actually sit inside these things called counties as well. I'm a taxpayer in two forms of government, the city government and county government. This is one of the reasons why we have a lot more sprawl than you all do, is that our voters move out into the county and get all of that infrastructure gains from the city. So we spread out and basically subsidize my brothers and sisters that live out in the county. Um, so we like to show them, this is what the average city resident pays in county taxes versus somebody out in the county, that we actually produce more wealth for the people further out. Now here's the mall at uh, seven, $8,000 an acre. Here's residential. So commercial produces more revenue than residential. Well, let's not stop there. Let's go into downtown. So here's what down, my, our building downtown is producing versus the mall at 8000 So what we learn is that what's good for downtown is great for the city, but it's unbelievable for the county because they don't come in and produce a streetscape project or a dog park or anything that the urban model needs. They're not helping with that financially but we're giving them all of this revenue. I want you to know that this isn't complex math that I'm doing here. I don't have a finance degree. What I'm using is fifth grade division to do divide land into buildings. I just want to know the productivity, right? We do this with cars. When we talk about cars, we don't compare cars on a miles per tank or kilometers per tank, do we? If we did, we'd all be driving Ford F-150s at 650 miles per tank. You'd say, you know, Joe, that's stupid. That's silly. All tanks are different sizes. It's, th- it's that unit of gasoline, that liter of gas that drives the vehicle. So we say kilometers per liter or miles per gallon, the numbers change. And we should all be driving even BMW Assettas at 70 miles per gallon. I'm being cute here. I mean, it's actually a really cool little car. It's as dangerous as all get up. I mean, if you get in an accident here, you're stuck in that thing. But it's, it's cool. You know, I'm, 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 I'm doing this to get you to understand. We already understand models of productivity. I just want you to transfer that to land. Land is much more finite than the gasoline. And it's all that you have, particularly with growth boundaries. So to go back to Ian McCarg, who uh, wrote a pivotal book in 1969 called Design with Nature, um, he actually says it. Ian is kind of played as a, uh, an environmental 
leader, which he was, but he actually gets into economics throughout the book. And I love this quote. He was also Scottish. He loved to lacerate American culture, which is, which is awesome. Um, and he, here's what he says about our, our culture. Money is our measure. Right? He tells us, we have built but one explicit model of the world and is built upon economics. If we're talking about economics, let's bring economics into the design world to understand what that means. Um, I like this too. Convenience its cohort, the short term it's been, and may the devil take the hindmost as its morality. So it just nails what we do in our country. So we can take the city and move the city aside using GIS technology. I can show you the infrastructure. I can show you the streets and pipes and all that stuff. We, we, can, we can put the buildings on that. I can show you how the buildings are built in your landscape. And we can map the ologies, the hydrology, the geology. I can give you all of that with the G, your GIS information. But can we take the next step? Can we follow McCarg and split the nature and the man-made apart? And can I show you the economics? Can I show you what's going on physically in your world financially as well? So here's my city again. This is my county. Um, this is uh, well, we have this is the, the rateable value. So we have non-taxable or non-rateable. This is a big federal park right here. This big gray splotch. So from from our perspective, it's not paying taxes. We're just going to zero it out. This is the Biltmore Estate right here. So we have low value in green. Hot is high value. The Biltmore Estate is America's largest house. It's built by George Vanderbilt. It's worth over a hundred million dollars. Incredibly valuable. When Mr. Cecil shows up, who's the owner of the Biltmore Estate, who's an heir to the, to the Vanderbilt uh, wealth, when he shows up at a town council meeting, we all listen. Very valuable person, right? But he's also sitting on 8,000 acres of land. It's a tremendous amount of real estate. He's got the biggest gas tank in my county, right? So if we convert the question, rather than total value, when we say value per acre, the map changes. And let me just show it to you in 3D. So can you all tell me where downtown Asheville might possibly be? Just take a guess. Purple, right? And what's, what's interesting about this model, knowing my place, is that this is, this is the big city, and then we have this, like, if that's the planet, we have these the satellites of moons in these little towns out here, and you can see Main Street, Black Mountain, or the, the, the Biltmore Park area, in those models that are of the, the, the mothership. So you have that pattern in your urban form. Um, we've done work in Ontario. Um, incidentally, you're a lot like Ontario uh, or, uh, from your tax system standpoint. And for us, I had explained how crude our tax models were versus what, the sophistication of your models. And this is basically what I could come up with. We're like a 1970s equalizer compared to like the soundboard where you have all these different knobs and dials, which is great. Your tax system is, is, is really complex but you have to know how the dials work and you have to use them. So this is, uh, this is Guelph. Uh, this is their growth boundary. This is their city. And they were really, really interested in what's going on up here. This is a, an office park and research area. And you can see the hot values uh, of, of taxable value. Well, again, that's total taxable. When you convert it to value per hectare, this is the map model. And you can see that the, the, the heat has changed to here. All right, let's go back from this to this. So all of a sudden, now we can see where downtown is, and here's their 3D. So you can see the relative value density that they're getting out of their downtown. And this is Little Guelph. This is a, this is a, a, a small city. Um, you can see the productivity there. This is a side view of the model. It's a little washed out. 
So 28% of their community is non-taxable. They have a mandate in that province that they have to have at least 20% into greenways and uh, park systems, which is great, but you have to pay attention to what's left in the 72% has to carry the cost of the entire community. Um, just to run through some examples, this is the Tim Hortons Distribution Center at 800,000 of value per hectare. And this is one of the new research buildings at about 2 million per hectare of value. Um, when you get into these things, this was kind of mind-blowing to me. This is their Walmart, and this is their Target. I guess this is the equivalent to what you all have here as a warehouse. Um, you can immediately see the tax break that they gave the Walmart, because these are basically the same buildings. So this is about three million a, a hectare. That's about a tenth the value. Why they did that, I don't know, um, but that's what it is. Then you get into this is the dead mall. This is the mall that was basically killed by the new mall, and it's about 2.5 million a hectare. And this is a strip mall by the university at three million. Here's the mall that killed the dead mall. It's about 8.7 million. So you can start to see the value in these urban typologies, right? Well, let's not stop there. Let's start going into the city now. Um, now we're talking the millions of dollars for the basics outside the CBD. Um, this is a residential property that used to be an old factory. It's now about 11.8 million. Now again, remember that that Walmart was 300,000 a hectare. This is the big breadwinner. They were kind of upset that this was the big the big winner at 42 million an acre or a hectare. Um, because as architecturally speaking, it's not exactly anything to write home about. Um, but it is what it is. It's the facts of how their taxes work. But moving beyond that, let's just fly through this. Thinking about the architectural legacy, the heritage of place, is critically important. The, 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 the buildings that were left for the community that were built in the 1890s, 1870, 15 million a, a hectare for a three-story building. 15 million a hectare for a 14-story building. And let the thing that wash over you for a second, this is a building that was built in the 1800s and it's produced that level of wealth for centuries. That Walmart's not designed for that. That Walmart's designed for a 15 to a 20 year life cycle. So as you think about this, what you're allowing developers to build in your community, are they building value that will be here for your grandchildren and your great-grandchildren? Will that wealth be passed on to you? And this is a question to ask about architectural heritage. So this building here is 16 million. It was built in 1859. I love that it's called the Frankensteins. Obviously, they sell hot dogs and beer, but that's what they do. Um, this was kind of an interesting lesson. This is the Petrie Kelly building. It's 63.8 million, built in 1882. The building right next to it, built the same year, is completely boarded up, worth 25 million a hectare. Could you just reach in your pocket and help them out, do something to subsidize the building or do something to get it active so you can produce more wealth in these upper stories that need to be untapped? Could you produce a historic tax credit? Something. Um, incidentally, Guelph has actually moved since we've done this study and they're helping that building out because they're putting their investment, they're putting their fertilizer where they can get the best crop return. Rather than fertilizing sod, they're fertilizing the marijuana plant, basically. Um, buildings that have been around forever. So basically, 0.4 hectares of that building would equal the 3.7 hectare of that. You guys got quiet. Is this like weird or too nerdy? Okay. Um, 
This is a, 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 a heritage building where they've kind of attached a hotel onto the back of it. 3.1 hectares of this development pattern would equal the 14 hectare mall. Again, produce and put your energy where you're going to get the biggest return, biggest bang for your buck. Um, other cities, small cities, Durango, Colorado is 12,000 people. You can see where its main street is. You don't have to be a tax expert or urban designer to figure that out. You can see the spikes. Cities in Colorado are, are runoff retail taxes. So this is their property tax model for their county. You can see downtown is standing heads and shoulders above everything. When you get into retail, downtown is still killing it. It's only two blocks wide, eight blocks long, and it's producing a tremendous amount of wealth. This is where all of their big boxes and malls are. Um, and then this is total productivity and these are jobs. So the data is there, just visualize it in a way that people can understand it. Um, we were lucky in Durango that people actually opened their books at a couple of businesses. Um, this bookstore, or sorry, this bookstore and this coffee shop shared all of their records with us so we compared them against Walmart. Walmart's publicly traded so we can get that data off the internet. This is the county taxes paid and property taxes between the little businesses versus Walmart on a per acre basis. These are the jobs, or sorry, the retail taxes. And then these are the jobs. So let me ask you a question. Between this business and these two businesses, who's hiring the local attorney? Who's hiring the local advertising company? Who's sponsoring the youth soccer team? You know, when we think about building community, when we think about building wealth, all of this data is here. Are we asking the right questions about where our priorities are? And this is just allowing us to see that with a and ask that different question. We've done this all across the country, up in Canada, and we just see the same patterns over and over again. For every dollar of suburban single family taxes are paid, a city resident's paying about five bucks. As soon as you get to a Walmart, it's about six bucks. A mall's about nine bucks. And as soon as you get to a two-story building, and this could be out at a periphery commercial corridor, out in some little town in downtown um, Auckland, it doesn't matter. As soon as you get to a two-story building, it shoots up. A three-story building, it shoots up again, and a six-story building, it's about here. And it's not a proportional growth, it's an exponential growth as you add that density. Because you're creating value. You're creating place while, while you're doing it. Um, your numbers. I'm sure you're probably wondering what you look like. Um, and I have to think, thank um, Kent Lundberg um, at, at uh, um, MR Cagney for, for producing these numbers on the transport blog. This is your model. Basically, this typology of building is produced, which is the big box, uh, old suburban, and suburban office is producing, producing somewhere about 85000 to $155,000 of uh, rates per hectare. That's what you get out of that. That's the truth of the, of the cash flow of that, that typology. When you get into the central business district edge or a town center or a, close to the CBD, now we're talking between 300000 and $800,000 of, of rates per hectare. When you get into the downtown, here's where you're at. $1.4 to about, let's say, $3 million. What that looks like visually is this. So do you all get where your taxes come from yet? I mean, there it is. What you can look at that as an urban designer, the first question in my mind is, all right, well, we've got the, we've got the sun producing some heat here, and then I've got this planetary system that sort of just stops. There should be a circuit of neighborhood cores that produce that localized wealth 
in those areas as well. And I, can, I guess that's your challenge going forward, is how do you learn from yourselves? How can you replicate these models and, and grow your community wealth in the process? And again, I'm just, just putting that out there as, as, a, as a question for you all. Um, because you need to start asking these questions about how you do that. What do you do with this information? How do you grow your, your community wealth? In Des Moines, Iowa, um, this is their, their model. Again, you can see downtown. Um, we created this, this visual to show how they grew their wealth since the 1800s. Um, incidentally, uh, Josh McCarty in our office produced this model, and he calls it mold growing on the freezer door. Um, because you can kind of see right about now, after the Second World War, how it starts to sprawl out and spread. So even though we've shifted our population, we haven't really created a lot of, a lot of wealth um, in the place. And it's pretty evident by the amount of green growing around. So to look at the model and say, okay, let's take a look at it between 1915 and, and 1970, they've increased their population by 240%, yet they've increased their land coverage by 620%. That means they've bought 620% more asphalt, more pipes, uh, more everything else to de-densify their community. That's great, but can you afford it? So looking at land, you can actually say, well, what are the critical, critical layers? Well, buildings are important. They pay taxes. Parking is important to get to the buildings, right? We're American. We need, we need cars. We need parking spaces. So, okay, well, what does that do when you cover the earth with asphalt? What does that produce for your community? Taxes come from the buildings, a lot more than the parking. And that's the reality of how the taxes are paid, right? So one could look at this and say, we subsidize that land coverage for the car because I'm not taxing the full potential of the property. So we, again, being map nerds, we made a corn map of the entire county. They're big corn people there. They, in that county, they grow as much corn as all of Ecuador while they still have the prime city of the state. It's kind of wild. Um, but, so we mapped the other crops of the building footprints and the parking, getting rid of the corn, and then just pushing all the buildings together and just making one monolithic building. This is the city of Des Moines. This is how big it is inside the county. It's 17 square miles. The parking lot to get to all of their buildings would make a parking lot of 18 square miles. Now you need roads. That's another 17 square miles. So in making the city, they've produced buildings, but they've produced twice as much space to the car. That's the American paradigm. When we talk about the car accident, I'm showing you a couple right now. These are what, this is the, the pattern that we do. Does it work financially? Well, the buildings produce about $25 billion worth of taxable wealth or value. The parking lots, however, are $1.2 million. So what's that, 124th, the tax potential? Then you've got these other things called roads. They don't pay you anything. And on top of that, they're a liability. You have to pay for those roads in the future. So all the rest of the county in beige here only produces six billion of value. So we get our wealth out of buildings. And it's that pattern of development. It's not the car, per se. It's that pattern of development that we feel that we want to have. In America, we want to spread ourselves out. We've got limitless land. We can just spread out all over the place. That's what we do in our culture. Great makes us happy. I want to be six foot tall and have a full head of hair. That would make me happy. I think you all should pay for it. So we just pushed the whole city together and floated it over itself as one large warehouse building. Um, and that's what it looks like. Or we floated it over Manhattan. This is what Des Moines has produced for itself. This is Manhattan. 
This is Des Moines, is one building. This is Des Moines' parking lot of 17 square miles. So other lessons, one of the things that happens if you're taxing me on value, there's a perverse incentive for me to give you low wealth, pay less taxes. I'm gonna be paying taxes a lot longer than I'm gonna be in the construction period. So it's actually gonna be something I'm, I'm producing for you. So in Chattanooga, um, this developer came in from Atlanta and wanted to produce a conventional grocery store. They had urban design guidelines and the mayor was willing to just get rid of them. And several folks in town wanted to know what the opportunity cost was. If we give away our rules, and ask you to do less, what does it cost us from a taxable standpoint? So here's the site. They've got mixed use buildings in the neighborhood here. They've got an urban grocer here and they've got townhouses. So they've got the ingredients of a community urban design in the, in the vicinity. Here's what a suburban, the, the model is called Publix grocery store. That's, that's a chain name. Um, they have conventional suburban ones. This is what they look like. This is, uh, retail, a residential above retail, this is office above retail, these are just down the street. We're not grabbing stuff from San Francisco, we're just saying this is your community. Um, and then this is the urban grocery model that a local person did um, with a liner building and a box behind it. Publix has done urban examples. This is in Miami Beach, this is a crazy building. Um, it looks like a UFO hit it, but it's really um, parking on the roof with a conveyor belt to get you up to your parking. They've done a small footprint model, which is here. So they have a parking, conventional parking, back door, and then they have a front door that's more pedestrian oriented. And then here's the site. There's 34 feet of grade change, or about, um, what was it, 10 meters, 11 meters, um, from top to bottom. One of the things that's kind of amazing to me is how few people can read plans, even on planning boards. Do y'all see the retaining wall? And here it is, this is hatch, this dot, dash line. The developers clearly labeled it in four point font right there. So we made this really crude model to show people, we're like, okay, here it is. Um, here's the, the building. And so apologies to any designers out here, this is a really awful model. But we just wanted to show how these houses now get to look at a tarmac of a roof. And here's your quarter mile long future graffiti wall right here. Um, but we're also running the taxes, and I'll come back to this in a second. So what if we just did Urban Design 101? What if we just did housing facing housing, put a couple corner buildings down that are mixed use, call it a day, you still have your big car park here. This is what you get. Um, do what the local guy did, do the, the green life model, mix it up around the edges, keep your center parking. That's what you get. Go crazy, do Miami Beach, you've got 34 foot of grade change, just drive right up on the roof and then densify the heck out of it. This is what you get. Um, back it down to West Palm Beach, which is a small footprint model, big parking area, ring it with mix of uses, this is what you get. And then let's say that you've irritated the developer, the developer goes back to Atlanta, you don't get a grocery store. You get what's already happening in the neighborhood, mixed use buildings and townhouses, woe is us. This is what you get. All right, so let's recap. Here are the taxes paid today with a derelict site. Here's what the developer's proposing to bring. So in truth, he is right, he's growing taxes. The mayor's gonna get three times the taxes out of the property, right? That's fair. That's one reality. The other opportunity they're foregoing for Urban Design 101 would yield them $154,000 in taxes per year. 
if you do better site design, this is what you get. This is the value of urban design. Um, go crazy, do Miami Beach, back it down to West Palm Beach, and then your no-build scenario where you just get what's already happening. So these are community choices. This is happening at a public meeting. We are now aware of what we're getting in the community. Now this is only looking at an opportunity cost model. To really truly do this, you're stuck with this building for 20 years. So if we just take two of these and just say, let's, let's play it forward, here's what they look like. Those are the taxes paid. These numbers really should be looking at the full 20 years that we're gonna be living with that building and let's net it forward as the net present value. This is what the numbers are that we're talking about. So what they're getting is they're taking $600,000 of, of new rates over 20 years, but they're foregoing $5 million. The community would be better off just reaching in their pocket, handing them $2 million and saying, please do this. You'd still be ahead of the game by $2.2 million. Do y'all get this? Is this... Is this depressing? You want to guess which one they chose? That one. We were really excited because we nailed their tax bill within $100. We had to take some silver lining somewhere, right? So when we, when we allow this form of development pattern to happen, it's not that the market wants it, it's that there's tremendous amounts of subsidy to afford it to happen. We're essentially making it financially allowable. So when we allow that to happen, we're basically saying this, this is more of a priority than getting a greenway, an art teacher, a dancing traffic cop. You all have dancing traffic cops here? You need to get some. So great, Joe, this is fine. You're showing us all the cash flow, but what about the costs? In any development, you have to do the cost. So we were hired by Lafayette, Louisiana. Uh, for those of you that have been to Louisiana, it's kind of a fun place. There are Cajuns down there. They're a little bit kind of, kind of zany. Um, and the mayor said, look, Joe, we're going broke. You need to show people how broke we are. And as we started doing our investigation, we actually found in their old documents, 1994, this is the cover. Any, any finance people in here? This is the cover of the finance officer's budget document from 1994. Do you think she's trying to send a message? So there's like, this is the parish government, and there's a wave that's going to take, take the government down, and then the shark's going to eat it, right? So what did you think that the elected officials did with this painful amount of information? Just kick the can down the road. Undeterred, the very next year, the finance director put this on the cover. Like, hey, did I mention how screwed we are? Right? So by the third year, they actually did this joint city-county government. Basically, the city was doing all right, the suburbs were not, and they took that escape like the last escape boat leaving the Titanic, and they just hooked the Titanic on it. It just took 20 years to drag the, the city down into the same economic mess that the county was in. And I asked them, I said, so what did you all do to like change things? Did you just use Microsoft clip art and fire the artist? Like, what did you do to save money? So if I were to build this godforsaken place, this is in Arizona someplace, it's sad that this is a real thing, but if I build this as a developer, I've got soft costs, I've got hard costs, I've got the cost of all the roads in here, and then I put my profit on top of it, divide it by the rooftops, and I sell it. If you guys put a permit fee on me, that goes into the cost of the house, right? I, I don't have the money just sitting around in my pocket. I have to get it somewhere. 
So when you get this stuck on the, when we open the road up and connect into the rest of the city, do you send out your finance officer to figure out what the service cost of this thing is, what all the costs of all government is, and do you bill them for that plus the maintenance of this thing in, life, in its lifetime? You come close, but more, the, more so than American examples, but you still don't ask for the whole financial nut. Now, I'm not the first person to ask this. It actually goes back to this guy with the cost of sprawl. Did you know the Nixon administration published a document called The Cost of Sprawl in 1973? This is stuff that we've been sitting on for 40 years. The data's there, the math is there. So this is the, um, the city of Lafayette, you can see downtown. This is a uh, kind of a TOD, a new urbanism project here, kind of like baby bear and mama bear. And one, just to give you one measurement, we measured their pavement. The pavement that they have is immense. They have uh, six and a half square miles of streets. Those roads need to be replaced. In Louisiana, they're built on a rubbery soil, so the roads fall apart every 35 years. For this model, we went ahead and extended it to 50 years, just to be a little conservative, and say maybe you could nurse that road out for another 15 years or whatever. We, we're gonna give you some hope. The road surface area, if you were to make one big parking lot out of it, this is what it looks like. It would actually span from Long Island to Manhattan to New York, would fill all of New York Harbor. That has to be replaced every 35 years. Or to float it over New Orleans, it's about 12 times the French Quarter of, of New Orleans. This is what they own. This is the community owns this infrastructure. It's yours. You have to fix it. I built it as a developer, but I gave it to you, right? So driveways, 13% of their, of their um, roads are in cul-de-sacs. And people treat them like, like they just park their RV here and just, that's it. I'm like, why does the public have to maintain this? It's essentially private, so that's 13%. When you look at the system of roads, um, the city, the old city limits, has a much finer grain network, about two-thirds of the roads in the city, one-third's out in the county. And so we pointed out how they were financed and who's paying for what, and we m made the mistake of saying, shouldn't these two pie charts match? Now that really pissed off this guy. Um, this is one of the city councilors, or county councilors, um, and this is his campaign ad that he gave to the newspaper. And I love this quote. It's not where you live, it's what you believe. So we've moved the city from fact to fantasy. The public works director, who, again, this is, New, this is uh, Louisiana, they have a tremendous sense of humor. He responded to this by saying, there's no such thing as a, as a public, as a, is an infrastructure ferry. So we had to Photoshop Kevin in on that one. You know, and, it, and it's true. It's like we just think that magically this stuff happens, that somebody comes in and replaces the street or the pipe. Well, somebody's got to pay for that. So we made a tax model to show the amortized cost of all the roads. So in red is the obligated debt of all the roads to replace them. In blue is the revenue. Let me, make, let me ask you a difficult math question. Do you have enough blue to cover the red? Well, hang on, before you answer that, let me put them side by side. And before you answer that, realize that half that blue is committed to debt service on the bonds of all the red. That are the interest payments, let's say, on your mortgage. So do you have enough money to pay for your streets? When you see stories about America, when you hear about Detroit going bankrupt, Detroit is just the bellwether species of a lot of cities that have followed this development pattern. Detroit just got there first. There are 215 cities in Pennsylvania alone that are bankrupt. You hear about them? 
you know, this pattern that we have developed in our country is a model of economic failure that we're going to be, re you're going to be hearing many more stories of um, in the next coming decades. So looking at the cost of all the buildings, this is a side view of the model. These are the rates paid by all the individuals at their properties. This is the cost of each of their form of development. So we just sent them a bill and said, do you cover your costs? In business, when we run our business, do we have our revenue and we have our costs? Are you in the black or in the red once you net one against the other? So netting the, the cost against the revenue, are you in the black or are you in the red? And then this is the whole thing in 3D. We said the city is bleeding. If you took this whole thing and just dropped it on the floor so that everything pops up vertically, this is what it looks like. So you can see the costs of these development patterns all around the periphery that are not paying their fair share. So it's, yeah, people are moving out there because they're getting all of this tremendous amounts of infrastructure that everybody else is picking up the nut on, right? So looking at the model, what's crazy is most of those areas are built out in areas that are tremendously environmentally sensitive. They're swamps, basically, or wetlands. And that's costly. So this is the cost of fighting Mother Nature to drain all that water out of there every time it rains. Incidentally, when we looked at what the planning guides were for the, for the city, they're planning a lot of growth in these areas that are actually more expensive. So in 1950, they had five feet of pipe per person and 2.4 fire hydrants per thousand people. They've grown their, they've grown their community to 121,000 people, yet they've grown their pipe per people to 50 feet of pipe per person and 51 fire hydrants per thousand. So they've increased their population by 350%. They've increased their, their liability by 1,000 and 2,000%. Does the math work? They told us, they said, look, Joe, we got rich. We had oil money out of the Gulf of Mexico. We got, we got rich. So they have increased their household value or their household income from $28,000 a house to $45,000 a house, but that's only about a 200% growth. So when you pencil it all out, they have a problem. The average household is producing about $1,500 in rates per year in taxes. Of that, what actually matriculates to the roads, once they pay for everything else that they do in their city, it's about 150 bucks makes it to the street. Other parts go to economic development, parks, city administration, police and fire, or whatever. When you actually look at the cost of those roads or what they should be putting in a savings account, it's about, it's about $3,000 a year. You see a financial problem yet? That's just the roads. There's stuff under the roads, too. That's another 4000 bucks. So they're just not saving enough money to pay for the pattern that they bought. So the American system is essentially upside down $7,000 a household. We buy more infrastructure than we can afford. And now we're feeling the pain of that after decades of, of deferred maintenance. So there's, there's problems. You know, Joe, people say to me, like, Joe, look, we're American. This is, this is who we are. We like to spread out. What if I could bring you a county that has done that? One place that's just spread out to high heaven. Well, we got it in Gwinnett County, Georgia. I love this example. When we did the project, they told me I was under strict orders. I wasn't allowed to use the word urban, city, town, or municipal in my presentation. And I asked why, and they said, well, we're, we're rural people, Joe. Okay? So here they are. This is Atlanta. This is the county outside, way outside of Atlanta. This is the county seat, Lawrenceville. And we did their math, and we found out there are 800,000 people in their county. And they told me, they said, I, I, called up, I called up my client, and I was like, Kelly, you're 800,000 people. She goes, yeah, but honey, look, we're 460 square miles. We're huge. Okay. 
800,000 divided by 460 is 1,900 people per square mile. That's density. So they're less dense than Atlanta, but we had all of this other data, so we put it out there for them. And I explained to them that they're 200 people per square mile denser than Mecklenburg County, North Carolina. Do y'all know what's in Mecklenburg County, North Carolina? Charlotte. You've heard of Charlotte, right? Ever hear of Lawrenceville? No. This is Nashville, Tennessee. There are 200 people, or 600 people denser than Nashville, Tennessee. This is Austin, Texas, Raleigh, North Carolina, my town, and then this is Chapel Hill, North Carolina. This is what 35,000 people looks like in a rural environment. That is not rural. And when I was presenting, they said to me, like, well, no, no, but you don't understand. We're not urban. I said, I never called you urban. I called you dense. <laughs> That's the reality. So we did their model, and turning it on its side, it just looks like a 1970s shag carpet. It's just straight across the whole thing. This is what we typically see in the form of a city. And you can see this, the municipalities in Chapel Hill, Carborough, and Hillsborough, and you can spot Main Street, Main Street, Main Street in the model. The data is there. The form is there. Just learn from it. They deliberately chose to fight becoming urban, and this is the model that they got. So they have got all the horizontal infrastructure, but none of the vertical spikes to pay for it. So this, this is the highest value in their community is $8 million an acre. All of these places here are less dense. And these are choices that they made to consciously buy into that American model of being suburban. So we made an economic heart monitor to just kind of rub it in. Um, this is Nashville, Austin, and Lawrenceville. So this is $192 million an acre popping up here. We got 476 in the less dense, Austin. And in the most dense, Lawrenceville, you're pulling a whopping $8 million an acre. And so I asked them, I said, are you going broke yet? And they're like, oh, yeah, yeah. Well, there you have it. So um, let me just kind of skip over a couple of things to the end here. Um, you know, Moses didn't deliver your tax code. It's man-made. It's created by humans. There will be errors and issues in it. Just learn from it and learn how to, how to affect your marketplace. Realize that this isn't an invisible market forces that are making me behave a certain way. If you give me a tax that's based on value, I will, pay, I will build for you something that's of less value to pay less taxes. It's that simple. Just be aware of that. And understand that the physical form will send you those signals. As urban designers, we see this all around us. In Normandy, you used to be taxed on your building footprint and what touched the ground. And so people figured out how to project out over the street and after about 100 years of that, they're just like, well, that was stupid because buildings got really close to each other in the street. In uh, England, you're taxed on the number of windows you had. I know the joker that put it in place, King William III. So the more windows you had, the higher the shillings rate. People started boarding up their windows to avoid taxes. They changed the tax law. In France, everything below your roof line was considered your building. Everything above the roof line was not. There wasn't some urban design guideline that made the mansard roof. It was policy that made it efficient that way. Just look around and realize that your policies can hurt you and put the gun down. And don't be obsessed about big data. You know, what I've just shown you is all stuff that's sitting right in your tax system today. You don't need some magic computer to solve this problem. You just need to think about things by asking different questions. It's hiding right there. Just ask the question. My city is worth 18.7 billion dollars. We're worth more than your all blacks. In fact, we're about 93 all blacks. 
half of the audience, half of y'all can tell me more data about the All Blacks than you can about your own city. You know, the, the CEO of, of the All Blacks probably knows Dan Carter's towel bill. I can tell you the cups in my nightclub cost five cents a pop. Know the economics of your city. If you can't measure it, you can't manage it. You have to be asking these questions and do the math. Thank you. Brilliant. Thank Brilliant. You. Do you want to grab a seat? Yeah. Thank you, Joe. Wow. That's brilliant. Um, look, whilst you get your breath and uh, get a glass of water or even a glass of wine, I'm not too sure what your, what your poison is, but um, what we're going to do now is have a bit of a panel discussion. Um, <laughs> I, I should put it away. <laughs> um, what we'll do is we'll have a bit of a discussion, and uh, I'm going to invite two of my colleagues up on stage for a bit of a, a chat. So Liz and John, would you mind joining me on stage, and I'll introduce you guys. So ladies first. So Liz Halstead, everybody, is the uh, Plans, Policies and Sustainability Manager at uh, Auckland Transport. And um, so I uh, welcome you to the stage, Liz. And John Dunshee, another colleague. He's the General Manager for the Development Programme Office, uh, a new team that's been set up. Um, what we'll do is, guys, would you mind, um, I said we're going to give Joe a little bit of a, uh, sort of a minute breather or two, just so everybody understands who John and Liz are and, and some of their senses or feelings around what they've just heard. Could I ask you guys to just reflect for a, a minute or two on what you've just heard and sort of how it reflects in, you know, how it references your work and also perhaps start with who you are and what you do so everybody understands uh, your role in the organisation. So ladies first, Liz, okay, sorry um, about that. So um, yeah, I'm the Policy Plans and Sustainability Manager at Auckland Transport and we um, develop the, um, the, I guess, the strategic um, vision and policies for transport, um, I guess, for the next um, 30 years. But we work really closely with Auckland Council and um, the other CCOs um, to try and deliver um, transport projects. Um, and I guess one of the things that I really took out of um, the session now and also this morning that we had with um, Joe is that data is key and that if you can't measure it, then how can you ma manage it? And that's something that we've been um, really challenged with um, and it shows us opportunities as well. Um, walking and cycling is a good example of that and we're starting to really find better ways of doing that. And um, also things like um, working in partnership and that's where working with um, local boards and business improvement districts to really work out what the true value of um, our, our land and our areas are and working together to... Um, I guess create extra value and true value and you can see that with the shared spaces work that Ludo and his team has delivered and also the emerging greenways work that's coming about um, for walking and cycling um, but we're really keen to work more in partnership to see what the true value is and we don't know everything but um, we're keen to work with you to really discover the true value of Auckland. Great, thank you very much. John. Hi, so I'm the General Manager of the Development Programme Office and the Development Programme Office has been uh, set up to work with um, the CCOs in relation to the provision of infrastructure for uh, development sites within um, Auckland uh, to ensure that that uh, development is delivered in a coordinated and um, holistic way to achieve a better allocation of resources. Um, in terms of um, the comments that Joe's been making um, I mean, 
for me, it's it's a lot of it's just it's a truism, really. I mean, um, the, what Joe talks about in terms of uh, high density development in city centres is is land economics. That's why people build high buildings because they can afford to build a high building because the revenue they get out and the people they attract all comes into a city centre. So they, those two uh, go together. He's talked a lot about costs and uh, as well about the costs of uh, capex and opex, which is a conversation in the council we have a lot. Um, I, it's uh, something I say to my staff an awful lot. You know, if you were going to do a bar graph of what the council spends, uh, capex would be about that and OPEX, which is your maintenance and stuff, would be about that. So every time we're doing a business case or something like that, then the mantra to them is, it's whole of life cost. Not just what the cost of this is to build, it's the whole of life cost. So whenever we're having that discussion, we're, um, you know, we're talking about the whole of life cost and that's a big thing we have to think about. And again, Joe's made the point in terms of um, how that can be reduced in a a higher density um, uh, in environment. And then coming back to the, the city centre thing, of course, then there's the CRL, which is you know, very topical. And of course, the council realises that if you're going to put that amount of infrastructure uh, into the city centre, one of the major reasons for that is to bring people into the city centre. And already developers are lining up to develop in the city centre because they can get staff and make money more easily in a city centre where they can get people in that city centre more easily. Um, and that um, attracts wealth, attracts, enables more taxes to be developed, enables the town to prosper better, uh, and provides a more vibrant city. And then finally, in terms of data, yes, uh, we're not very good, really. Um, the council is very bad at it, quite frankly. Um, we've got data everywhere. And we, again, are thinking, and uh, Jim, who's sitting in the audience, is uh, right at the heart of this, um, how we can get our data, uh, manage it better, and make it simpler, and use it better. Uh, and there'll be a journey we're going on uh, in, the in the area I'm in, in terms of infrastructure and how to do that, including in the city centre. Um, you know, we're looking at um, uh, business uh, building information models, uh, we're looking at uh, how we can use GIS better to manage data uh, and use that data to manage our assets better. Great. So, J Joe, you might, be, might want to respond or should we take a, a, a question from the floor? Is there anything you want to say to um, our colleagues or should we take a question from the floor? Um, well, no, it's just that I mean, it's, it's hard to compress this day into a comment. It is, I yeah. mean, we've, we've yeah. covered a lot of territory. Um, you know, just from the from the audience, the size of the audience, the the, the size of the staff, the, the conversations that I've heard uh, that we had this morning, um, you you are an amazing community, and and the fact that you're you're willing to go into this with your eyes wide open, um, it's it's not about who's who's to blame or what went wrong, and that, you see that in so many different cities. So to to go into it saying how can we make this place better, how can we improve on what we're doing. Um, and, and, and be honest about that is, is really refreshing and, and amazing to me. Um, and, and again, maybe it's because of where I'm coming from, um, where we're in some sort of global de delusion in, in the States right now. Um, I mean, I can tell you all stories about North Carolina that are just crazy. 
But um. Okay. Well, look, I mean, that, that, <laughs> that was that was useful, and I, I guess just a bit of a bit of a reflection back, and I'll I'll get this gentleman here on the on, the, on my right, please. Thanks, Kelly. Um, it's interesting. The organisation Open Council is uh, probably has assets of about 40, 44, 45 billion dollars of assets. Um, we have a staff of about eight and a half thousand people. Um, we're a big organisation, a big 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 business, and you talked a lot about data business and about treating the city like a business. And um, there's an opportunity to, to make our size work for us. The scale that we have, the ability to shift the paradigm is quite extraordinary, and it, but it wasn't there and wasn't available before 2010 when we amalgamated into one. But there's always the criticisms, too big, too large, whatever, disconnected. But at the end of the day, there's an opportunity to make um, our assets work for us. Sure. So it's about the right investments in the right places. So there's a really positive opportunity here. And, uh, at 45 billion, if that's your, if that's your, your value of your, I guess, your, Asset. your assets, yeah, yeah. then what's the, the value of the taxable basis as well? Because it's got to work yeah. together, yeah, the taxable and, and essentially the public. Yeah, absolutely. So it's bringing those two together and having the right people in the room to have that, that discussion and understand the, the impacts of both. Uh, otherwise, there's unintended consequences of, of any decision. So, um, look, gentlemen here on the, on the right. Thank you. Yeah, I was wondering what Joe and the other panel members, if they had any thoughts about um, the merits of like a betterment tax for like when you put in a, a rail line or a tram line, you um, part of that is recovered from the businesses and, and other commercial or industrial activities in the area. Um, like I think they do in Portland, Oregon, and in France they have what they call a versement tax, which helps pay for all the public transport infrastructure and even operations, and also possibly combining that with more weight on the land value tax, so you get a better use of land um, rather than having empty, you know, empty sites for years and years and decades. Even I would say I would say yes to both of that. Um, there, there's actually one of the presentations that we gave today. We talked about. Um, Henry George in, in land value taxation, which you all actually have better access to than in the states. We only have two states in our entire country that actually have that enabled as legislation, but you all have some form of that, and that's um, that's something that you you could and should be using to eliminate speculation, basically, or or allow somebody to say, look, if you want to keep that as a surface parking lot, awesome, but we're going to re recover all of the the infrastructure that we're putting at your front door. You know, cities are cooperative corporations or a cooperative social corporation that, that the community builds infrastructure in front of my real estate and the implicit agreement is that I will pay for that infrastructure. So I should put a building on it that pays the bill, basically. Um, in, in, in a lot of the states they call what you've talked about, the betterment tax, they call it tax increment financing, which allows a certain boundary of capture to pay for the service that's going to be yielding the benefit of that. And that's another good tool. The more tools that you use, the better. Like I said, you, you all have this crazy soundboard with lots of different knobs on it. You could take advantage of a lot of those things within your existing system. I mean, I just say that, I mean, on that point, I mean, if you think of Crossrail in the um, uh, UK and the, that goes from east to west through London, the um, private uh, landowners there actually approached the government and said, we need this. Um, and if it makes it easier for you, we'll actually contribute to it. So the government didn't even have to ask them to uh, pay a betterment tax. They actually went there and offered to pay, put a contribution towards the cost of that infrastructure. 
uh, through the heart of London because it was going to make a, such a difference to their businesses. And I was part of, I lived in um, London um, for uh, about 11 years and I was part of, of that passing through um, this, uh, part of, part, um, through Greater London Authority and it, as it just became business as usual and now they're looking at that to, f to fund other things as well including potentially some of the high speed to rail line as well and um, it's something that we need to just continue to look at the different tools. Great, great question. Um, Rob. Um, thanks very much uh, Ludo and John, uh, Rob Thomas. Um, uh, this question I guess a bit broadly, we've got two tax structures really in New Zealand, one around uh, what uh, happens at central government and then one that happens at a national level and a lot of your presentation tonight was talking about land value. Um, but have you ever looked at data about um, what the more about the tax that's driven from other developments or other spaces um, in terms of uh, national tax? So we know land value can derive council tax, but have you ever taken data of tax by property um, from from GST, uh, which is our goods and services tax? or from income tax at a household level, or income derived from businesses as well. Cross-reference that, because I think, you know, when you look at this, there's not a single picture here, but there's a two-part to how you grow cities um, and who's paying for costs of growing cities. Um, the short answer is we've looked at, um, like, the GST. We've looked at that in several states. I've, I've shown you the uh, Durango, Colorado example, um, where the city has run, the majority of the city's um, revenue comes from uh, sales, uh, sales taxes basically. Um, Ohio actually has a, an income tax that becomes local um, and they do that because they have a lot of border cities where people wor live in Kentucky but work in Ohio and so they, they hit you with, with a, a business tax and a income tax. I think ultimately the question is how do you run your most local government and in most places the revenues to run a local government are property taxes which is also the thing that local governments have the most control over from a zoning perspective so it's just making that that nexus or connection um, but if people were to ask to yeah well, it'd be great to do a more nationalized tax study but the majority of your municipality is run well other than your police officers I guess in this country um, police officers in my country are run locally through local taxes. But, um, you know, for us, we, it's if we have access to the data, we'll map it. But it'd be, it'd be neat to do that model. That's maybe the question for the, for the staff and the community here to take that same thinking of modeling that but get access to that data and, and, and put it on a map to see what it looks like. But I would agree with you. It's two different systems that have to be laid on top of each other. Good question, Rob. Thanks. I'm not sure if it has been done here, but I mean, we know that the city centre uh, delivers uh, disproportionately more, you know, higher percentage of GDP than per hectare than other parts um, in the region or in the in the country. So, if you take it on a very simplistic view and say it produces more GDP, then uh, from a national taxation point of view, you would think it produced um, uh, more national taxation as well. Thanks, John. Gentleman in the front here, Kelly. There's. A Thank you. Thanks very much. Uh, very enlightening. Um, I'm actually a Sydney sider, and I've just spent the last couple of months uh, here living in Auckland. So, 
Um, just some observations that I, I, I could make. I, I am involved in the property industry, so uh, uh, Ludo, you mentioned your, your $45 billion worth of uh, assets that the council is, uh, is sitting on, and from what I can see at the moment with some of that which is, uh, which is ripe for urban regeneration, there's some really good things happening in terms of your, your, your transformation in the Wynyard Quarter, which is going to turn a lot of that assets, a lot of those assets which probably haven't been much in the, earning much in the way of revenue into uh, something along the lines of, um, of what Joe's been talking about. It's going to produce great revenue for the city and interested to see where that will be deployed, I guess, ultimately. But if I could, if I could make some observations, um, I can listen to the radio over here and I, and, and I can identify with uh, many of the issues which the city's grappling with at the moment, exactly the same sort of things as we, as we face in Sydney. Um, housing affordability issues, uh, escalating rentals, uh, how do we deal with, the, with these immigration levels that we've got at the moment? But, um, um, okay, I, I accept the fact that Auckland is 25%, maybe 30% the size of Sydney, but, but one thing, having lived here for the length of time that I have just over the last couple of months, is, is I don't really think you're grappling with the public transport issues in this city. Um, uh, it's, it's, it's just horrendous, uh, even by, by Sydney standards. So I don't know whether I'm missing something, but uh, if, I, if I am, um, please enlighten me, and, and if not, um, just what sort of attention is being given to that. A lot of the things that Joe's talked about here, increasing densities obviously in the CBD, getting more people living there, will partly solve that, those issues I guess, but at the same time I see a tremendous amount of new road infrastructure going in, which to me is just uh, escalating what's already a, uh, a pretty tragic situation quite frankly. Okay, so it's a, it's a great question and, and, and it's important to answer it. I, I think um, Liz will, I think, is the key person in this conversation, but I think we've got an extraordinary plan that, I, that needs to be told a little bit more clearly to uh, the If you're in the property industry, it's important that we, we speak to you too, but we need to tell our story much better. The, the transport plan of the next 20 years is nothing short of extraordinary, but, it, but it's not as well known as it might be. Uh, the investment going into public transport is quite different to how it has been. Uh, in the last 50 years, there's been a lot of expenditure on, on road building. And in 2010, when we altered the path of a lot of, of the direction of transport in Auckland, it is now heading towards a much more transit-orientated city. But for 50 years, we were going a certain direction. And now, I get the messages from people mostly, well, it's not, not why are you doing this, but when. It's not about why anymore, it's when and why isn't it happening quicker. But for 50 years we went the other way and interestingly enough, Auckland has the highest ownership of cars per head of capita in the world. So it's an interesting challenge. Um, back in the 1900s, uh, 1950, we had one of the highest public transport usages per capita in the world. We were number one. And in 1956, the tramways were ripped up and we went down a road, mode, motorway road building program. You know, now we're having to re-package re the city, re-transform it, and it's very expensive to retrofit a city, better to make the right decisions at the beginning. So we're on a journey, you're not, you're not every resident of Auckland complains about transport congestion and public transport. So I don't know, I don't know how you're going to answer this question, Liz, in 25 seconds, but perhaps seconds. we could send through to this gentleman a I can a, send the regional public um, transport plan to you as well, but we do... 
Yeah, but we do. Yeah, and we have got. Yeah, yeah. And, and so we are. So we've got a, a vision for our um, public transport network, both um, in the short and the longer term. We've got our um, new network that we're delivering for our buses, and obviously our CRL rail link we're putting in. We're investigating light rail, and we do want to fast track it. Obviously, we've got um, legislation that. Um, we have to keep in track with in terms of how fast we can deliver things. Um, we are also trying to improve our ferry services and also connect everything up. So, but we know that we have to do more and that's why we're really keen to work with partners. If, for example, we can fast track things and developers who want to also um, engage in trying to um, invest more in terms of our public transport network because often um, it's interesting when you go into negotiation with developers Often they don't want to invest in infrastructure and public transport infrastructure. That will be the last on their list, and so which um, and so it's we're really keen to try and work um, more to try and deliver that faster. But yeah, we know we've got more work to do, and it is interesting. Um, both John and I have worked over in the UK, and um, developers there uh, have been more willing to put their hands in their pockets in terms of that. So it's, um, yeah, working together, really, to try and deliver it faster. And I mean, there's, I mean, just adding to that, I mean, one of the reasons that Auckland was actually created was, and brought together, was to, to uh, address that infrastructure gap. There's a recognition there's an infrastructure gap. Mm. And as you says, it's a dollars and cents thing as well. So there is a, a real recognition that, uh, that Transport and public transport in particular has to be uh, improved, and um, that is being addressed. If you look to the numbers on the train and if you look to the quality of the train system, that's improved significantly in four or five years. There's been an enormous amount of uh, investment in it. Um, we're not Sydney, we're not Melbourne, we don't have the same resources that those cities do. We're also constrained by the, the isthmus and the, the, the way we do it, so that requires a, a bit more thought and perhaps a bit more money at times. But I have to say, I mean, you can do it. I mean, I catch public transport all the time. I had a meeting at Treasury yesterday, got back to the airport, got a bus to Papatoe, got on the train station, got on the train there, got the train to Glen Innes, got off the train to Glen Innes and caught a bus home. And so it can be done. And I just, one, one, one other thing is we are trying to work with the government at the moment on the transport alignment um, with the government and NZTA because we realise we need to deliver more faster as well. No, that sounded a complicated journey. It was actually very straightforward. <laughs> and you had a smile on your face. Yeah. Okay, guys, um, it's interesting with uh, the London references. In, uh, London built the, the tube when it was uh, a million population. And uh, if it hadn't have done it, just imagine what would have happened. So we've got to do it now, yesterday. So uh, the lady at the uh, second row there, I can't see yeah. who it is, but Thanks, someone Rudo. I know perhaps. Hi, yeah. Hi. Um, I've got a question for Joe, and it kind of goes back to your slide about Asheville and your tourists coming in there. And that raised a question for me about the value ascribed to some of the more intangible things, including green spaces. Have you got a model that shows some of the value generated by recreational spaces, green spaces, whether they're right in the city like our Albert Park or our Waitakere Ranges and maybe it's your Smoky Mountains. Um, and um, I've, I'm going to have a discussion with Liz about this. So something that takes into account those intangible values and the, the sustainability as well? Um, yeah, that's actually it's, it's a, a, f a frequent 
question that I get, or some, in some cases it's also a, a, a critique, that certainly, Joe, what you're suggesting is that if we should just get rid of public land altogether and just build everything, right? And that's that's not what I'm suggesting. Actually, if you get not into what I took out of what you were saying. No, no, no. But I, in, in other audiences, I get this. So, so I'm just taking it to the extreme. Um, what you'll what you'll find it if you think of uh, Central Park in New York City, um, the value of the real estate adjacent to that park is so much more valuable than anything behind it because it, it looks into that park. So the the park's value doesn't disappear; it just gets pushed to the edges. Um, so you'll see that reflected in the value models if you. If you were to take the um, the Auckland model and start to hover around and look over the model into some of the park spaces near downtown, you'll see that adjacent to the real estate. Um, the other thing is is that there's a, there's a there's a ripple effect that goes into that neighborhood. If the neighborhood is designed in a way that's walkable and has that um, livability to it, that value from that park will actually transfer into the blocks behind it because it still has walkable access to the park. It's not, I'm not on the park, but I can walk to it um, from there. And I think the thing to think about is, is the, the human is, is, a, is a species. Um, there's certain things that we require in our public realm. If we're gonna have a trade-off from our private realm, um, in, in my, if, I, if I move from a, um, a, a much larger house into an urban environment, I sacrifice and move into a smaller personal space. But what I buy into is that public realm, that I can, I can walk to a restaurant, I can walk to work, I can, I can do other things, but that walkability needs to be great. Um, the better the walkability, the more I'll walk as well. So um, I joked at the, the meeting this morning, I said, you know, I can take a bush and go stick it in this intersection over here, and will a bird show up? Maybe. But if I put other bushes around, and if I put water, if I put shade, if I put some fruit trees, I'm more apt to get more birds with that habitat. So if we think about pedestrians, as we're, which we all are in some form, um, we have a habitat that we like. And you can see that in the value of the city. Does that make sense? It does, thank you. And that's also something that's been recognized by house builders now in Auckland. Uh, we have conversations with them about pocket parks and parks, and they actually want them put in and we have conversations with them about the fact that we can't afford to actually buy the land at residential value to turn it into a park. Um, but they, in some instances, they will actually now talk about putting the park in themselves because they know they're going to get an, an additional value out of the um, housing they develop around the edge of that park, which is something that is, you know, whether it's Hyde Park in London or Central Park in New York, that is recognised that that adds additional value. Thanks, guys. That was, that was a good, good question. John, a fellow um, urban designer. Yes. This, um, is, this would be a very good question. Is this on? Yeah. <laughs> uh, petrol taxes and road user charges. At what level of, of your governments in the US are those charged? And how are they applied to the... Wh which parts of the road network are they applied to? And... Um, and how do you strike the right balance between those user charges and the use of property taxes for paying for the road networks? Um, there's not a clean way to answer that. Um, our federal government has the largest portion of the gas tax. Um, the states have a layer that they put on top of that. As far as the, the road maintenance, um, in the state of North Carolina, where I'm from, the cities maintain the majority of the roads within the city limits. There may be a, 
a, a state road or a federal road that goes through that, and the state and the federal pick up that portion, actually give a check to the city um, to help fund it. Um, but once you leave the city limits in the state of North Carolina, the state picks up everything else. So as I was talking to you about counties, I get, I get two, in, in my county, there are two voters out in the county for every one voter in the city. So you can think about the politics of that and what happens with, the, with any kind of political decision. We always kind of lose inside the city. We're basically f sending the money out there because we just lose from a voting perspective. Um, if you go to the state of South Carolina, the state handles every single road in the entire state, which is crazy. Um, other states, the counties pick up some roads. So it's really, it's, it's hard. It's not, there's no really one simple way. We, we don't, we're not that monolithic in our country about how the taxes are paid. Um, but in my city, my city has its own public works department that pays for the city streets. Um, and that comes out of property taxes and not gas tax. We get a little piece of gas tax, but not much. Without going into detail about it, just Joe, in the central city of Auckland, we have a have had a tax in a way which has been running for 10, 10 years now. It's called the city centre targeted rate and we accrue $20 million a year uh, from leveraging or taxing the business at a higher rate. They do it because they want to. Uh, the product that they get out of it is a higher quality streetscape environment. So all the central city squares, upgrades to streets has all been paid for by the business tax. And uh, it's a really good model because that's about $200 million over 10 years. It's a good load of money to have and um, kind of a useful model, which isn't applied across the region yet. But again, it's about sharing best practice. Liz and I talked about that today. That's actually very similar to a business improvement yeah, district. It's the same. Yeah. Um, but also in, in Canada, they have, actually, I think, I think it was Toronto that invented that term, mm -hmm. the business improvement district. And then it spread all over uh, the, the states. But, but that typology of taxation is very logical in the fact that it, it, you're basically putting the money where it's coming from right back into it with local control. Canada has actually now expanded that to, uh, they call them community improvement areas, to take that same idea of improving through a higher level of service, but doing it in neighborhoods too. Yeah. So why can't neighborhoods have some form of self-governance and self-investment where they're actually cultivating that community investment as well to build uh, neighborhood parks or fixing sidewalks and stuff like that. I mean, there is some level of basic service you always have to maintain at a local level through your community, but but the but the, it, at a smaller neighborhood level, you should be allowed to. You want to have pink flamingos everywhere? Knock yourself out, you know? Just why not? You know, yeah. um, that, that model could work. And that funding can then be used to leverage other funding. So that was what we found with the business improvement districts that um, emerged in, the, in um, the UK from 2005, that, that was leveraging more and more public realm and other um, improvements too, which improved the uplift of the area. Great. I, I, I think I've um, been asked to, well, I've been, think, I've been asked to uh, pull the session to a, a close. Um, it's been a fantastic discussion. Um, I want to thank you, John, as well, for coming up on stage, and also for you, Liz. Uh, but, Joe, I just want to say thank you for being here at this moment in time. I think this is a pretty critical time, almost like a juncture. Which way do we go? And I think, you know, you talked very early about diets. Um, is there a need for a new diet for Auckland? Um, we're a new company, a very young company, actually, five years old, uh, just finding our way, uh, a bit of child in a way, childlike. Um, stepping through things with dealing with big issues. Um, it's interesting hearing from Joe, you know, you could put all your models 
apply it to Auckland, gentleman here, Sydney, every city in the world pretty much that's growing is dealing with the same issues, just the scale is different. Um, we need to learn more from each other, examples of success and, and failure and understand where things work. So thank you. Um, last week I was interviewed by the Productivity Commission, which is a, a government uh, group that's been set up to look at capture value, the value of planning, the cost of planning, cost of design. You know, it's a very important discussion, so I think we'll be sending some of your information through to the Treasury Department and the government because they need to have all the, have all the information at their fingertips. Um, the interesting thing is you put all the information in front of people, but then they make the wrong call. So there's obviously something else going on where the heart is overriding the head. And if you buy a new car, why would you do that? It's the most stupid decision, but we do. Why would you have children? <laughs> it's hard. It's an <laughs> it's a economic disaster. But it's about the long, it's the long time. It's a long, it's a long investment, and it's, it's much more than that. It's in a way priceless, isn't it? So I think, thank you for everything you said. Um, the thing about tourism, you know, about the soul of the city, you know, New Zealand's number one economic driver now is tourism. So it means we have a soul, but it's about making that DNA, that soul stronger. Um, so look, I think it was brilliant, really, really useful. I, I felt quite geeky listening to it, but I think um, urban designers are always talk, they, everyone thinks we're sort of um, evangelicals and we always think about it as pink cycleways and stuff. Well, it's quite, quite clearly not the case. Um, so thank you for, for demonstrating the value of good design. So to the three colleagues, my two colleagues and our special guest, please hand of applause. Thank you. You've been listening to the podcast of Auckland Conversations, brought to you by Auckland Council and our sponsors Jib and Resine. For more information, visit our website, conversations.aucklandcouncil.govt.nz. Auckland Conversations is proudly produced by Tandem Studios. 